Welcome to the Cape Watch podcast, episode eight. Uh, I'm Chris Kendall. I'm an EU official, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here in a strictly personal capacity as somebody who's unhappy with Brexit and wants to talk about it with Steve, my co-host. Unfortunately, Steve isn't here in person this week. Um, he is off somewhere else, and um, various scheduling difficulties mean that I'm doing. I'm recording the intro on my own. But you're about to hear a discussion that we had last week while we were still in the same place. Uh, we talked about federalism, about democracy, and, uh, oh, you'll love it. It's dead interesting. What we didn't talk about last week uh, during our conversation about federalism was the S word. Uh, the S word is subsidiarity. I can't believe we didn't talk about subsidiarity because, of course, it's um, it's a, a crucial concept when we talk about um, EU governance uh, and EU federalism. So... What's 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 subsidiarity? Well, it, it, subsidiarity. Well, let, let's let's go straight to the horse's mouth. So, from the ULX database, which is the repository of EU law online, the principle of subsidiarity is defined in Article Five of the treaty. It aims to ensure that decisions are taken as closely as possible to the citizen, and that constant checks are made to verify that action at the EU level is justified in light of the possibilities available at national, regional or local level. Now, stress, national, regional or local level. Um, in case of a breach of subsidiarity, the Committee of the Regions or EU countries may refer um, an act directly to the Court of Justice of the EU. In other words, um, subsidiarity is about state action, government action, taking place at the level closest to the citizen. Um, when you Google it, it says something slightly different. When you Google it, it produces a quote, doesn't, know, doesn't say where the quote's from, saying, the Maastricht Treaty reasserts the rights of member nation states through the subsidiarity principle. That is wrong, and I'm going to explain why that's wrong. So, um, okay, so where did, it, where did it come from, this concept of subsidiarity? Well, it, it was... It was um, it was developed during the 80s um, as we um, moved from the Single European Act towards the Maastricht Treaty. And um, it was a way of addressing concerns from uh, member states um, that we were going a little bit too far down the path towards what they would describe of as a super state. Um, they wanted to um, set in stone... Um, the way in which you divide competences between the EU level and the, and, and the national level. And it was felt that subsidiarity, this concept borrowed from the Catholic Church, uh, would work as a way of defining, well, look, we're only going to do things at the EU level um, if it can't be done effectively at a lower level. It's a fudge. It's a fudge because um, what it says in the treaty... And the way it's defined in European legislation is not the way it's understood in member states, in certain member states at least. Because um, 
if you look at how subsidiarity is understood in the UK context, it's things should be done at the national level unless there is um, a, a, a clear case for doing it at the European level. But what I understand by subsidi- subsidiarity is, no, it should be done at the lowest level uh, that is appropriate. So, you know, the Scottish level, uh, the English regional level, the parish level. Um, in other words, it's been taken by member state authorities, by national authorities. Well, it's been taken by Westminster as another tool of Westminster exceptionalism. Um, but that's not really what it is. The subsidiarity, if you hear people uh, throw subsidiarity at you um, as um, a defence of intergovernmentalism or the supreme right of nation states um, and national tier of government, uh, go back to them and say, no, 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 um, these things should be decided by the lowest level appropriate, um, which often will be local government or regional government. Oh, there you go, that's my, uh, that's my subsidiarity hobby horse. Okay, so welcome to Cake Watch with me, Steve Bullock, and with me, Chris Kendall. Um, and this is episode eight of the Cake Watch podcast. Didn't think we'd get to episode eight when we did the did the first one. Um, or indeed when we did episode seven. <laughs> Absolutely. As they say... Last week when we did episode last, seven. <laughs> as they say on... I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. And we welcome you back for a second week to the Excel Alhambra <laughs> Theatre. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a letter from Mrs. Trellis. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're going to do something a bit different. We're not going to, uh, we're going meta-topical rather than, rather than talking about this topic, topics of, uh, talking about what's happened in the world of Brexit this week. And we're going to talk about something very close to Chris's heart, which is federalism. <laughs> the <laughs> F word. The F word. Yeah, it's, uh, this has ended up being all about me and my, my particular obsessions, but I don't think I think it's just me. I'm not I'm not by any means an expert on this. There are going to be people listening to this, I suspect, who know way more than I do about it. But it is. Well, um, should we get them on instead? Yeah, all right. It's <laughs> a really good idea. What are their names? <laughs> can we get them on? <laughs> we can, and I can give you names, but I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, listen, the thing is that this is um, something that this is this is what motivated me to seek out a career in the EU institutions in the first place. A vocation, I could, I could even call it, to use an unfashionable word. Because you, you were actually radicalised, weren't you? you were I was radical. radicalised by Mrs Thatcher and her Bruce speeches, we were saying. But not in the way she hoped. Not in the way she wanted. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I have a particular problem with the way in which the word federalism is misused and abused in the British context and how it's misunderstood um, by most people who use it. When they say the word federalism, they usually mean centrism, which, of course, is the opposite of federalism. Well, this is, this is what I was going to add. I mean, my contribution might be relatively limited in this episode, but um, I am an ex-politics teacher. Hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used to. I mean, a, a teaching assistant at uni. Huh? And I used to teach British politics and, you know, basic political concepts and so on. And oh, You're the expert. You, ex- we should get you to talk about well, it. Well, what, <laughs> what I understand by federalism is a system with uh, 
symmetrical and clearly delineated divisions of power be- between different levels of government. Mm. Um, so in that sense, you know, the US the federal, uh, well, mm. is, a, is a federal mm. system in that there are clearly delineated powers that are federal, that mm. are at a federal level, and they're clearly delineated powers at a, at a, at a state level. Yeah. And the same for, for Germany with the, the lander. So I have to say, I've never understood, if you're worried about the creep, creep of competence away from, away from your national capital towards Brussels, you should be a federalist because exactly. federalism, as I understand it, enshrines the, the, the rights and responsibilities at different, at, at, at different levels and try, exactly. attempts to do it rather firmly. Exactly. What it does so is, I've never understood the British problem with, yeah. with, with federalism at what all. It, what it does, well, what, the, the idea here is that um, you're addressing the issue of a democratic deficit and you're, you're, you're creating a rules-based system. Um, so when you, you rightly pointed to the US, but we could just as well point to Belgium, where we both live. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and, of course, Germany with its lender and, and Well, Spain. Belgium's not quite federal because it's not symmetric. I'm sorry. But Fe- no, it, federalism it, it, requires symmetry no, no, in, in, in my, in my, no, 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 in my Bel- politics 101 Belgium class. is most definitely a federalised country. Um, and Canada is a federal country that I've spent some time in as well. And so, um, we, we don't need to be too... I mean, I, uh, I, Canada's asymmetric as well, yes, you're right, but it is still federal, you're right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, let, let's not get too lost in textbook definitions here. I mean, we know what we're talking about. Um, and um, what, fed, what a federal system is, um, is not a centralised system. So anybody who talks about a super state or a centralised state or a Brussels jackboot has fundamentally misunderstood what federalism is. If they're... If, if they're, if they're Pointing at people like Jean-Claude Juncker, or I'm not sure he is a particular federalist, but anyway, somebody Stop like Jacques Delors or, or, or Guy, Guy Verhofstadt, who's, who's, who's a clearly a, a European federalist, um, and, and, and suggesting that these are people who want to impose Brussels' rule on, on nation states is completely missing the point. So, um, yeah, so this is what I wanted to talk about. So I, I, I'm not quite sure where to start, but I, let, me, let me perhaps start with a little bit of autobiography. So when I was at university... Um, I became very interested in Europe um, and the idea of European Union. Um, and um, I, I was a member of the Young European Movement, um, the Jeunesse Europe, Européen Federaliste, Young Jeff, Young European Federalists. And you know we uh, we organised talks. And we had a. I remember um, one talk in particular given by uh, a man called John Pinder, uh, who sadly died um, in 2015. Um, though I guess you might say he was lucky well. lucky not to have lived through these times. But anyway, John Pinder was. Um, um, uh, Somebody who really influenced me, and and I know um, was a great influence to a great many people. He was a very um, he was a, he was a prominent federalist and, and 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 a real thinker. And what he did for me was he 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 established the context through which I then came to understand Europe and and understand what what federalists de- describes the democratic deficit mm. and. and um, 
Do you, want to, do you want to talk about that? Do you want to talk about the de- democratic yeah. benefit? There's something that's used towards Europe a lot. Yeah. I mean, European Union 101 classes at university will have a seminar on the dem- democratic deficit. Well, the democratic... I mean, this is... The democratic deficit is another term that I, I feel has become seriously abused. Now, I can just imagine all sorts of politics, um, academics uh, around, you know, who might possibly be listening to this, again, tearing their hair out because we completely... <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I'm not a politics graduate and I never really studied it except insofar as I had to sort of read up for my Concord, which was 25 years ago. So, um, but um, the democratic deficit, as I understood it when I was a student, was all about how you had um, a tier of government at the European level which did not have the same degree of democratic accountability as um, you had at the national state or the regional state in, in certain countries. And um, federalists were um, very much focused on reforming the EU to make it more democratic. And that was indeed a a major focus for um, successive intergovernmental conferences in in the 80s and the 90s, Maastricht and um, uh, Nice and Amsterdam, though I want to come back to that because they took things in a different direction um, intergovernmentalism, we get into another whole discussion about intergovernmentalism versus the community approach. Um, Which will be important when we come to mixed agreements, actually. In terms there's of there's all sorts of, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpick here. But anyway, um, let, let's try and sort of, uh, we'll, we'll eventually, some kind of structure will emerge to this <laughs> yeah. stream of conscious, consciousness ra- um, rambling. But um, so the democratic deficit was something that was identified by European federalists as a weakness in the EU project that needed to be addressed. And the way to address it was to um, give the European Parliament more powers and make the European Parliament directly elected, which it became in, mm-hmm. I can't remember, what was it, 74 was the first? I can't remember. Um, and um, and slowly give the EU institutions the kind of democratic legitimacy and accountability that you really have at a national level yeah. and in yeah. federal systems at the regional level and so on. Mm. Um, ironically, perversely, my observation is that the more that the EU has sought to democratise itself, has sought to give itself democratic legitimacy, the more that seems to have pissed off member state nationalists who 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 and i think it's yeah i i I absolutely agree and i I think it's because it appears to acquire the facets of the state exactly and they they object to that and they don't what what the, the the objection seems to be there is no way that you can be democratic so the more you try to be more democratic, the more offensive that is to us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, and, yeah. and, and every argument I ever have with... I mean, we've kind of moved beyond these arguments, sadly, with, with Brexit. But in, in the run-up to the referendum, every argument I had with um, a, a Eurosceptic was always about, well, you know, the EU isn't democratic. Well, I'm getting, well, yes, it is. Well, if, I, I did a table a few years yeah, back, yeah, which, yeah, got, yeah. which got circulated. Here are all the reasons why the EU <laughs> institutions are actually more democratic than the UK's national institutions. <laughs> House of Lords. <laughs> well, monarchy. <laughs> monarchy, I mean, yeah. Lack of written constitution. I mean, where do we, where do we end? Um, and first past the post. Um, and um, it always ended up in the same place. It always hit a brick wall, which is that, well, look, you can't be demo- you can't be democratic because you're not a democracy. You're not a demos. You need a demos to be democratic. Is, 
this is a made, made up, um, in my view, <laughs> please feel free to uh, write to us at contact. <laughs> Katewatch.com. Uh, uh, e, uh, no, it's quite cake. Cakewater.ca. Let, let me not be distracted. I, I will file your. Um, <laughs> I will file your complaints in the bin. Um, <laughs> the um, where was I? Demos. Demos. No, you can't be democratic because there's no. You can't no be demos. democratic because there's no. But demos. we're going to do everything we possibly can to stop the emergence of, yeah. of something like, that could be called yeah. a demos. You're not. We don't. We. Yeah. You're not a democracy, and we're not going to let you pretend to be a democracy because that might then lead to the emergence yeah. of uh, demos, and therefore no. Um, the the argument is one of these re- cell, circular arguments, which is you can't be democratic because you're not a demos, and you're not a demos because you can't be democratic. And um, but the, but, the, but these memes. Still, continue, still continue today on the Leave side. Yes, I mean, still, I mean, even yesterday, unbelievably, you're still getting tweets about the EU SSR, oh, you know, yeah. and and about the we're still seeing endless stuff about the EU imposing stuff on people and, and imposing stuff on member states, imposing austerity, and and you know, and 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 so on and so forth, and. And yeah, and 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 again, you're still ending up in these in these these circular arguments, and no no amount of discussion about uh, the the democratic processes that lead to each that that you know that go into yeah. each each institution in the EU seems to have the slightest yeah. slightest bit of impact. I mean, and you get endless whataboutery, you know. So you say, yeah. well, ministers for, ministers, you know, democratically elected ministers or ministers of a democratically yeah. elected government. Make the decision to say, well, we don't directly elect ministers. Yeah, yeah. He said, well, yeah, okay, yes, you don't directly elect ministers. Well, actually, constituency normally does in the UK, but you don't directly elect ministers. But that's an issue with that's an issue with the yeah. UK system. That's not an issue with the the EU system, you know. Well, and th- and then when you finally get round to MEPs, <coughs> directly elected by proportional representation, it's, oh yeah, but nobody votes. Yeah. Well, we, 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 you, you get you, <coughs> so there's you, endless what aboutery about this. You thing. end up in in. You end up in the, you end up in this febrile atmosphere leading leading into the referendum where you had people saying um, we just got constant abuse of words and, and terminology. So you had people saying, "Well, the EU desperately needs reform," <laughs> and of course, this is the drum I've been banging my in, in, entire life. Um, and, and and you won't you won't find a Euro Federalist who's not in favour of EU reform because, of course, that's the whole point for us is you reform it and make it better and more democratic. That's what it's all about. The people saying that never seem to have a suggestion for how it should be reformed, well, though, do they? Well, they do. Yeah, yeah. They, they think it's all about just taking back power to exactly. the member states. So yeah, we, exactly. we'll get into a conversation in a minute about ex- uh, exceptionalism and why the British are particularly bad at this. Of course, they're not the only ones. But if you want to see what Euro, what EU reform should look like, if you're someone like me, um, first, you know, go back to first principles. Go back and have a look at the Ventertaining Manifesto by um, Altiero Spinelli. So, okay, let me t- let me talk a little bit about this guy because he's he's one of my heroes. So, Altiero Spinelli uh, was an Italian communist, and everybody knows Italian communists are the best kind of communists. And uh, he- generally, they're not really communists. <laughs> well, <laughs> apart from anything, but anyway, Spinelli um, was um, uh, was uh, a partisan. Um, I believe he was a, was a fighter. Anyway, he, he was he was um, arrested and imprisoned by Mussolini during the war, and he was imprisoned on an island called 
Ventotene, which is off the um, west coast of Italy near Naples. It's a little bit further out than, than Ischia and looks by all accounts to be an absolutely lovely place. And uh, a great regret of mine is that I never actually go got to go on the um, Young European Federalists <laughs> retreat to Ventotene that to they do every summer. To yeah. um, I know that so, um, I know that some of our friends go and, and give talks there Um John Worth, I recall, was out there recently, and I, I'm spitting with envy. But anyway, he gets much so, better gigs on us. It sounds it sounds idyllic, but I suspect that um, it wasn't particularly idyllic for Altieri Spinelli as he Not was imprisoned good. on this island. Um, but while on this island with um, with uh, with another political prisoner, he developed um, what was called the Ventotene Manifesto, which became the blueprint for a lot of European Federalists after the war. And his his argument was. Without some form of European federalism, we're not going to be able to defeat fascism in the long run. We're mm. simply going to revert back to nation-state rivalries and balance of power bullshit, and we will get back into you know it'll just revert to fascism. In the long because run. it'll always be a, it'll always be a temporary it'll yeah. always be a temporary arrangement. You need to move beyond the the the, the nation-state thinking. You yeah. need to move to a more federalized structure where. Sure, you have a national level of government, but you also have a European tier of government, and then you know you'll have tiers of government below that. So the principle of, of federalism, and um, that's the thinking that has motivated um, European federalists ever since. And um, now you can look, for example, at the uh, manifesto that was put together a couple of years ago by Giva Hofstadt, um, who is a liberal in the sort of continental sense of being. Uh, an economic liberal, mm. so you might even call him something of a soft Tory. At least that's how he was seen when he was prime minister. Yeah. Um, and Danny Cohn-Bendit, the um, French Green politician, who by no means um, a, a Tory in, yeah, in, in, quite, yeah. in any stretch in of the any imagination, sense, yeah. but they put together uh, a manifesto, um, and I made a note of it. I'm going to put links up to it, but it was um, yeah, their, their manifesto was called. There is no alternative to a federal Europe. <laughs> I like that. So you get what it says on the tin. Um, and um, they are still making the case, and, and, and as you can tell from the title, there is no alternative. They're making the case very strongly that we don't have any choice. This is how, where we have to go or else, or else it all falls apart. So how, how, would it be, how would it be different? Give us, we know how the EU works now. Mm. Um, and we have very intelligent listenership, who I think the fact that they're listening to episode eight of this tells us that they have a pretty good idea of how the EU works as well. Um, how, what would the difference be? Give us a sketch of, 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 of how it would be different under one of these, under one of these plans. What, what would we see that was different? Well, I mean, what we're primarily looking at is we're looking at architecture. So we're looking mm. at... Um, so, again, we, we go back to the 80s and, and what I consider to be the high-water mark of, um, of, of, of European federalism under, under, under the, the various Delors commissions. And you then had the, um, you then had the intergovernmental conference that, 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 that led to Maastricht. And what, what you saw there was already um, the dilution of the community ideal. So you, you, you then saw... Um, um, the, the 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 creep of intergovernmentalism. Let's call it intergovernmentalism. At the Do time, we explain, should we explain yeah, let's what explain that. So, so under the community approach, where you have um, f- federal competence, if you at the European level, where where the European tier of government is competent, 
then it acts um, as a, as the legislator, as as the legislator, as the executive, in the way that um, a national government does for mm. national tier issues. Um, you don't need to refer it back to um, the member states acting on, uh, on unanimity. Mm. Um, you have uh, a federal system, so you and have... the member a, states act like members of the legislature. Yes, they, they act as a second chamber. So you've yeah. got the council acting as a second chamber, but they wouldn't have veto rights, for example. Mm. You'd, have, you'd be voting by qualified majority. And then you have a, uh, the, 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 first, you know, the principal chamber would be the European Parliament, which is directly elected, representing the people. Yeah. And and um, and that's how it works in un, how it worked under the European Community pillar. So in a lot of EU uh, policy, that's how it works in in mm, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in you know in development, in trade, in, in 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 all sorts of areas. But with Maastricht, you then had introduced these other two pillars. You had the Common Foreign Security Policy pillar, and you had the Justice and Home Affairs pillar, which were intergovernmental, which meant that um, the Commission had a role but it wasn't um the the uh, executive um in the way that it is under the community approach yeah, yeah. you have an intergovernmental approach where if you don't all agree then nothing happens and and, and ultimately it's the it's the it's the national tier that is wrong so it's, it's being done between governments it's not being done as a yeah. quasi-state so um and you see that with you see that an example of that which will uh which would be important is that you have uh, in trade agreements you have what are called mixed agreements, mm. which is where um, the EU signs as the EU, but then each member state signs yeah. as a, signs as a member state as well yeah. as an individual member state. Because some of the because some of the some of the issues that are in that agreement um, are not solely community competence. They are yeah, they're member state competence yeah. exactly. Yeah, uh, which ends up obviously in a in a, in a very that, that that makes things very complicated. Now, I kind of want to move this away from the EU um, angle um, and talk a little bit about the UK. Mm. Um, and and I want to come back, obviously, to the EU because this is ultimately all about the EU, and this is what our um, our, our podcast is about, Steve. But um, well, podcast about Brexit. Yes, which is about the EU. So we should bring it back to the EU so and we, the, we, the we EU to, and yeah. the UK. Yeah, absolutely. But um, now I want to talk a little bit about the UK, and I want this is where I'm quite interested to talk to you because I know that you have lived in Scotland and have uh, strong sort of political mm. interest to and connection with Scotland. And, yeah, and I, I, I am. See, I, I, I happen to believe that Brexit is just one of a host of issues that um, need to be grappled with in the UK because UK politics is broken and it's broken yeah, for all yeah, sorts absolutely. of reasons. And, and Brexit is just a symptom, it's not a cause. You know, it, it's a, it, it's, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's both. I yeah, think we're in a, yeah. we're in a, we're in a, a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, where yeah. It's, it's both the effect and the cause simultaneously, I think. So I, I, um, I wrote a, a piece on my blog after the um, Scottish referendum um, where... Um, this issue, this um, what's called, it's called the West Lothian question, yes. came up again, and I wrote a piece because I was so angry at the stupidity of this argument. So the West Lothian question. Um, let's see if I can explain it briefly. So the West Lothian question is where, why, why should? So it was all about whether Scottish MPs 
in Westminster should get to vote on issues that are purely about England. England and Wales, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. So, you, so yeah. you have a, I mean, because Scotland has a, a separate legal system, yeah. um, in almost every case you have, um, you have uh, Scotland Acts and England and Wales Acts. So you have the Criminal Justice Act, brackets yeah. England and Wales. And Scottish MPs, as members of the, legis- the UK legislature, yeah. members, of the, members of the House of Commons, uh, can, can, vote, can vote on those. And the argument is that once you devolve powers in, res- in reserved matters, uh, non-reserved matters, so devolved matters, Scotland has its own parliament to, vote, mm. to vote, on, vote on these things, but it still has MPs voting on England and Wales. Mm. Mm. Now, and this is why I was talking about symmetry in, in relation to federalism earlier. And why I think uh, I think some form of some form of symmetry is actually is actually important here, because the reason that this happens is that there isn't an English equivalent ah, of the there that, isn't an English equivalent of the Scottish Parliament exactly, and, and there's no reason not to have an English equivalent of the Scottish Parliament except that there doesn't seem to be any appetite in England to to have one, and that's well, and that's I, and that's all very little, and 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 that's in, that's essentially England's yeah. choice. What what made me so angry about that whole debate was the fact that it nobody was saying that it's stark staring obvious that an MP elected to the national parliament from any part of the country gets to vote on national issues, whether you voted whether you're elected in Scotland or England or anywhere. If you're an MSP, if you're a member of the Scottish Parliament, then you get to vote on Scottish issues. You don't get to vote on national issues. Yeah. But if you're an MP in Scotland, of course you get to vote on national issues. Because so if, the, the, national national, if yeah. the national parliament is responsible for um, something that in Scotland would be devolved, but in England isn't, well, that that's still a national issue and therefore they get to vote on it. It's obvious. It's like you wouldn't ask um, a Bavarian uh, MP... Um, representing a, a, an area in Bavaria, not to vote on a, on a German federal issue, would you? I mean, it, it, but I think, but I think, I think the, I think the, the, the point here and what what it shows up really clearly is that uh, is that is there is not an equal there are not an equal four nations here. Is that the, the that Engl- England is in the lead? The national well, parliament is in England, and. Well, I mean, my view, my view is that England, England, the matters only pertaining to England should not be discussed course, in, the, in the House of Commons. Of course they shouldn't, but it's not just that, uh, Steve. It, it, it's worse than that. And, and the problem that, I mean, because it's also, all of those problems that Scotland is experiencing and can see for itself are also experienced by local government in England. And local government in England is 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 in an even an even worse state because yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. Um, you've got devolved power also going to. Uh, Local governments in the U- in, in, in England, but as you rightly point out, that devolved power is it's, it's a purely it's a fiction. It's yeah, not yeah, really absolutely. devolved. It's like if you look at a federalized system. If you look at Canada, which I know quite well because mm. I was posted out there for a number of years, um, you have written into basic law the division of powers, and and a key one is revenue raising. And when so, there's conflict, uh, 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 the Supreme Court decides. Yes. So, so, it, yeah. so, so in 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 um, Canada, for example, um, the revenue raising is is roughly split. I mean, they have a redistribution mechanism, but basically, uh, the province has about as much tax raising power as the federal mm. 
mm. structure in government. So, yeah. so for an awful, so in many respects, they are very much on it on an equal footing. Now, if you look at the European context, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no remote. I mean, the the, the, the revenue raising potential. Um, own resources of the, the EU tier is just is minuscule yeah, yeah, compared tiny. to the national. Uh, but then when you look at devolved uh, power in the UK, um, it, it's even worse because okay, you've got um, you've got um, revenue raising through um, council tax, but of course the problem is that um, the, it, um, the the budgets are set by central government and. It, and then mitigated by yeah, yeah and, exactly. and you, they they you, they what they do is they place spending um, burdens on um, local government, but they don't give local government the power to raise its own budget, and therefore yeah. it just you, they get caught in an awful catch twenty two. So where I'm going with this um, is the direction I'm going with all of this is to talk about Westminster exceptionalism mm. and and the, the the iniquities of the first past the post system. And what makes me so angry about... And I mean, I, I, I don't know where to start pulling holes in it all, but let's start with the notion of constituency MPs. Now, a lot of people point at constituency MPs as being actually a great benefit of the Westminster-style democracy. Yeah, because yeah, a close, you, close yeah, connection, yeah, a single, yeah. single red yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's look at it from another angle. What you've got in, 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 in the British system, never mind the, 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 the democratic... Um, offensiveness of having <laughs> a, a system where the the vast well majority over 50% of, of votes are wasted. Yeah, in the well yeah. well over fifty yeah. percent in the vast majority of constituencies across the UK, um, your vote isn't going to count because it's a sort of it's a done deal. Um, getting beyond that, you've got this bizarre situation where um, you don't really know who your local councillors are. Very rarely do you, do you really know who your local government is. I mean, you've got the you've got the metropolitan mayors, which is you know a step in the right direction. But most people won't have much notion who their they might know which party it is. Burn, yeah. Well, yeah, but then but then the party that they'll vote for in local elections often again uh, they they vote on national yeah, yeah, on, on national grounds and. Um, the M- when they think of a local problem, they'll often write to their MP about it. And their MP will, with some justification, look on him or herself as being the the local government. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, they will... They'll write to the council to try and sort yeah, things out. they'll yeah. write to the council to try and sort things out. They'll, so you've got these, this weird sort of double, triple-hatted nature of British MPs who can sometimes be ministers, carry on second or third jobs as editors and, and various things, as Boris Johnson has done in the past, and they're supposed to be constituency MPs. I'd say just on that, in the civil service, if you have a second job, I mean, you're basically entirely discouraged from having a second job, but they recognise that especially young people might have to have a job in, you know, a supplementary job in a pub at the weekends or something like that. But you have to get express permission to do that. I mean, being an MP is the only job where you don't have to get express position, permission from your employer mm. to... to, to to take on additional work. And I find it absolutely baffling yeah. that it could not be considered a full-time job for, I know, it's for anybody. Extraordinary. I mean, this is really, really extraordinary to me. Yeah, yeah. And I'm astounded by And it, it, it tells you about the electoral system and the party system and uh, the, the, the deep deficiencies in the system. That MPs who, who have several other jobs get, get re-elected. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. would, You'd imagine they would just be chucked. It's, it's so weird. If on you every find level. out your MP has an, has another has another two jobs, 
how on earth did they get re re-elected? Yeah. I mean, and often, I mean, often, and I remember from from being a kid, it's it's, it's a sort of bizarre source of pride that your local MP is a government minister. It's like, oh, oh our MP is really important. He's a government minister. You know, like, yeah, that means that he's not going to be spending any time whatsoever on constituency issues. Yeah, absolutely. He's not doing his job. Yeah. And so, you really, I just, I mean, you know, I really do. I think the system is really fucking broken, um, and it's just broken on all sorts of levels. But the worst thing about it is that. The people who need to grok that it's broken are the ones who think that it's the model that everybody else should yeah, be following. Exactly. They think it's the bee's fucking knees. They think it's the best thing yeah. since sliced bread and that everybody else should well, be it's the following Westminster, them. It's the Westminster model. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. the mother of parliaments. It's yeah. the only one that is a real proper parliament. And that is toxic in so many ways. Yeah. A, it, they, it means that they are blind to their own faults and there's no push for act, meaningful reform of British, uh, yeah. of the British, you know. B, it means that they do not take other tiers of government seriously. So they do not take local government seriously. They do not take devolved government no, seriously, absolutely. and they do not take European government seriously. No. And this is then where I'm getting to with all of this <laughs> very prolix sort of. They do. The European Parliament has increasingly, over the years, taken on more and more power and authority, and and it is a serious body. Mm. Not all the people in it are serious, and we could talk about that too. <laughs> yeah. It has its problems. But on paper, and when you look at the things that it gets to do, it is a serious leg- leg- legislature, more serious, I would argue, than Westminster in many but, ways. But- I, I, I don't necessarily want to get into a debate of PR versus first no, no, absolutely. But no, what no, I do want to do, no, but that. what I do want to do is I want to... Um, I want to examine first past the post and the way in which it um, creates a fudge between you know, local, uh, between different tiers of government. Yeah, you end up with a national tier of government having a kind of local uh, mandate, um, and 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 and, lo- and national politicians consider themselves to have a local mandate, which is why you then get end up with these Westminster uh, West Lothian question issues, and why you end up with them. Um, poo-pooing the European Parliament and really disrespecting it, which, you know... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, which they do routinely, yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, for me, um, when I look at the British electoral system, in a way it's not surprising that you've ended up in a situation where um, the European tier of government is rejected as being anti-democratic because, of course, they would say that because they think that they are the only ones that can be... Exactly, there's only one democracy and it's the Westminster model. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And everything else is either poor simulacrum of that or Johnny Foreign has made a a terrible error by not trying to to have a Westminster system. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think think it goes deeper than just the, the, the electoral system. I mean, I think the... The the reliance on convention, the reliance on um, uh, uncodified uncodified constitution, the reliance on essentially self policing yeah. standards. Yeah. Um, I think we're now seeing. I mean, I'm very very deeply worried by the state of yeah. by the threats to democracy in the in the UK at the moment. You did a great thread on this, um, Steve. Which again, I'm going to link to. It was uh, a really so. really good thread that you did a couple of days ago, and I thought it would it, it got a lot of attention, and rightly so, because I mean I, I agree with you. I think that I am also deeply worried by there, there's a certain complacency. Yes. But also a certain rigidity and inflexibility, and 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 I would almost say there's oh, there's a word now that I've gone and forgotten. Um, 
there's a perfect word that I can't remember. So, uh, anyway, I'll come to me. It'll come to me when I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll put the mics back on when yeah. I'm leaving, and it'll it'll come out. We'll just slot it in. We'll just edit it in. No, absolutely. I mean, for example, I mean, I've I've long lamented the end of entropy. Entropy is that the word I'm thinking? I think it might be. Yeah. Anyway. But I mean, I've long lamented the the end of. And it's been happening. It's been coming for a long time, but now they're over. The constitutional conventions about ministerial responsibility and collective yeah. responsibility. I mean, these are these are these are gone now. I mean, there is no collective responsibility. We've had on Brexit briefings. Um, I mean, ministers openly briefing against each other in yeah. articles in the in the press. Yeah. We've had policy making. I mean, uh, policy making done through articles in the press and through and, and through speeches and and counter counter articles and counter speeches. So, I mean, there's no collective collective responsibility because mm. it's impossible. You know, uh, dissent is dissent between cabinet ministers is absolutely absolutely tolerated under the current government. Individual ministry responsibility. I've used the example of <coughs> Amber Rudd and the hundred letters that were sent out to people perfectly legally in the in the UK. Some of whom put their houses on the market and ended rent contracts and made arrangements to leave. Mm. I'm not saying that Amber Rudd should have resigned. The fact. Is that there was no talk of her resigning? It was, mm. it was she was never ever yeah. going to. Nobody was ever going to resign over this. Um, and again, that, that the the idea of individual ministerial responsibility is essentially essentially gone. Um, she was never. I'm not having good. Even particularly, I'm 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 Barut here. I mean, not very long ago, thirty years ago, somebody somebody would have to be seen to resign. A head would have to be seen mm. seen to roll for this for for right to be done. And now we see, and we've seen it through the, we've seen it through the referendum, and we've seen it since, that the idea of probity, the idea of truth, the idea of honour, is just gone. I mean, they were, they were, they were, they were always optional, and we didn't realise. We thought that there were optimists about the system, like me, thought that they were inherent in the inherent in the system, yeah, and that the exactly. system kept it going because. But it that's was, the it exceptionalist. Was that's the exceptionalist thinking. That's the exceptionalist thinking, and I was, I, I fully mm. admit that I was entirely, I was entirely guilty of this as well. I, I was an admirer of the of yeah. lots of lots of aspects of we, the we, system. We, we, we congratulated ourselves on having a system that wasn't codified and set down in rules because we didn't need it to be because, because we, we had probity it, yeah. and honour and. Yeah. Um, and now we're seeing the limits of that kind of system where you can't. Um, if, if you now don't people lie it. to the House of Commons. I mean, they just lie, yeah. and it's yeah. fine, and yeah. they get away with it without sanction whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a big one. I mean, the idea of lying to being found lying to the the, the yeah, the but Commons, it's, it's it's again, it's, it's just don't give the a shit. Rubicon has been crossed, and now exactly. you know that that we're we're in a completely new context, and you know, in in other systems. So if you look at um, look at France, for example, in France, um, you have a history of. Rewiring the constitution when it, it when there are problems. So you've got to. You, well, well, I don't know which republic we're up to now, but we're on, up to the some umpteenth republic. And five, is it? I think it's five. Well, I can't. I have no idea. But I didn't. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> when it's broken, they go back and they fix it and they come up with a new system and and and, and they tweak it. And they have um, a com- will they have a com- national conversation about yeah. it as well? And they and they can do it because it it it's set that, that's set down in law. And and we can't do that. It's not we we, we can't. Even if we wanted to, the the way that our legal system in the UK works, it makes it, it means means you just can't you can't we don't we can't do that. It, We're badly in need of a constitutional convention, in my in my view. But it's just not, but it's not going to happen. And frankly, now who would you select to be on it anyway? How could you do? It? I mean, this is the problem. Is, is is you know we again ever since I can remember ever since I've been politically literate, people have been talking about 
um, constitutional reform and a written constitution. And, and, and I just don't think it's there's something the the, the the problem with the British system is 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 also why it can't be fixed. Yeah, but it, the, I think the point about it though is that it it actually works remarkably well when everybody agrees to police it to, to self police it properly. When you do have some sense of probity, when you do have some sense of honor honor at work, it actually work. It, it bumbles along surprisingly well. That's exactly why it doesn't work when that goes exactly. And 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 it's not for the good times that we need a constitution. It's yes. for the it's for the bad times exactly. that we need a constitution. Exactly. And just as hard cases make bad make bad law, yeah. um, you know the the good times make bad constitution. We yes. need we need a constitution that that has safeguards. And and I think what we're seeing now is that we don't have that. I mean. The idea that I mean, the Miller case is a perfect example of this, that a private citizen had to take the government to court yeah. to protect the rights of Parliament, which is sovereign, yeah. um, is just absolutely, yeah. absolutely baffling to me. I mean, cause, but we were in the situation where Parliament was not going to stand up for its, was not going to stand up for its own rights and was not going to demand them. And even if it did... The government may have just overridden it anyway, yeah. and and because of the unwritten nature of the constitution, mm. there would be essentially nothing that nothing that could be done. But if, if, if I mean, I think I, I, if it hadn't been for the Miller case, the government would have the government would have triggered Article Fifty without the say yeah. without yeah. the say of Parliament, and it would have been accepted by the EU because yeah. the EU takes uh, in line with your in line with the member states' own constitutional requirements. As being safeguarded by the member state, not by yeah. not by the EU, so it would have been it would have been accepted. They wouldn't have been in a position to question that, and there we would have gone. And I mean, we had we had a Brexit minister. I can't remember which one is a uh, particularly unpleasant bit of work from 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 the northeast. Actually, unfortunately, um, I can't remember his name. It wasn't Philip Davis, was it? No, no, in the Lords. Oh yeah. Um, and he, and he was saying that article 50 will article 50 will not be revoked and other lords uh said are you saying that if the if the houses of parliament vote to revoke article 50 the government won't do it and he said it's our position that article 50 will not be revoked so and somebody said i think uh, john reed um said you might want to reconsider this. Can you can you either repeat that that's the case, or say that you've reconsidered and you mis, misspoke? Because what you've said is the parliament is not sovereign. Mm. Is that the government mm. the government is so, mm. sovereign regardless of the regardless of the view or the uh, given by mm. given by parliament on this? And and he wouldn't retract it. I mean, and there you have basically a government minister mm. undermining the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. Yes, I mean it's, um, it's effectively it, a coup. I mean, and, you... it, and, it, and it's <laughs> and it's done. I mean, yeah. it's, it's actually it's actually done, yeah. and I have no I have no doubt now that we're now in a position where if Parliament voted for something that the government didn't want, the government would simply refuse to do it. Yeah, and we're talking about and that. Yeah, is, and that, and that we're talking is, about a minority that could, government as well. Yeah, and that is that is in a in a system of parliamentary sovereignty. That is the definition of an executive coup. Yeah, and and we're close to this and. I mean, when I wrote that thread that you talked about, I, I read through it carefully. I actually, mm. very rarely for me, I wrote it out first mm. because it was a little bit complicated and I wanted to get my thoughts in order mm. um, before, I, before I committed it publicly. And I read through it and I thought, am I being hysteric about this? Mm. I know sometimes I can catastrophize and mm. 
What have you? No, I'm, I'm, no. I'm, I'm really not. We're in a, we're, we're, we're potentially deep, deep, deep in the, yeah. in the shit here. So I mean, this is the definition of an executive coup, and the position that we're in as well, of course, is that we have um, potentially both main parties being quite authoritarian. Mm. Um, and of course, these are going to go mental and bombard me with uh, with spam on Twitter about this if I say that, but. But they are quite, quite centralising, uh, in some ways, authoritarian parties and uh, at the moment. And so you've got one party looking at the executive power grab mm. and going, well, that's going to be ours mm. soon. Yeah. That's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah we that. don't like it now. Yeah. But, um, but for the programme we want to introduce yeah. that we're going to have to, that's going to be you know, unpopular among some, yeah. that's going to be great. We're going we're gonna to like that power. And once it's gone, in this uncodified mm. system, mm. Um, once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, and and and, problem, and you can't get it back because yeah. it, ac- it actually ceases to be a convention. No, it ceases to be part of the constitution. Exactly. Once it's not respected, it ceases to be yeah. part of the constitution. And and having this kind of constitution only works while ev- while there is broad agreement. Yeah. And what we've seen, and which we've discussed on this podcast a lot, is uh, we we have a government on on Brexit, but also on other issues mm. that simply doesn't care about these things. Mm. They just, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter to them, and it doesn't even pretend. No, and I think in yeah. some cases they don't even know. No, no, they I think they revel, revel in their ignorance of the yeah. constitution. And yeah. but they, they, this is, it, it's easy to be ignorant of a constitution when the constitution isn't written down. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's yeah, not absolutely. something that you can easily point to when you've got sort of a bunch of extremely um, uh, nerdy lo- constitutional lawyers who are the only people who actually hold this sort of institutional knowledge. Yeah, and we can't we can't expect the House of Commons library or the clerks of the Commons to no. be to be the to be the guardians of this. Actually, we have to ex- expect the members of the Commons yeah. to be to be the guardians of this. And now now in fact we're in the very very peculiar situation where over Brexit and over Henry VIII's powers and so yeah. on. We've actually got the House of Lords as being the, pr- yeah. the sort of protector of the the Constitution because they're the ones who know more about this. But, but this is precisely the thing. I mean, you you you, you none of this would be happening at all, if we had that kind of written codified constitution, because you wouldn't have had a, a, an advisory referendum with such a daft, stupid question. Yeah. And you wouldn't have had a, an advisory referendum that then suddenly became the will of the people without a supermajority. And all you'd of have the, had supermajorities or you'd have had a lock of the, each of the four nations. Just, or, yeah, a whole of bunch of stuff wouldn't happen if you'd had the proper safeguards in. And this yeah. is exactly what you were saying. You were so right to say, you know, it's not for the good times that you need a constitution, it's for the bad times. And, you know, that... We're in an extremely bad time, and we've got here because we don't have that constitution, and because we've got these people who think that they somehow are um, entitled to do whatever the fuck they like because they are elected through our crazy system to become the government of the United Kingdom, sitting in Westminster, even though they are a minority voted on the basis of you know a first past the post system that is fundamentally broken, a bribe with public money. To get, a, to get a working majority. We're in a terrible state. And I, how do we get out of this state? What happens to get us out of this state? Well, this is, a, this is the biggest worry. And, I, um, you know, I've said before that my, the, the worst thing about Brexit is not necessarily Brexit or the financial, uh, crippling financial uh, cost of it and so on. Actually, the, 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 possibly the worst thing about Brexit is what it does to the Constitution, what it does to standards in public life. And what you have, what you have here is essentially uh, the people who've lied, the people who uh, seek to undermine the constitution, 
the people who seek uh, executive power grab, the people who want a power grab over devolution uh, from from devolved parliaments, are winning and have won. Mm. And by Brexit happening, yeah. it's given it's given license to them in the same way as we've talked about before. The, the the you know the baser instincts of uh, of xenophobia and so on have been given yeah. have been given license by by Brexit by Brexit winning yeah. and, and being seen as legitimate. We're now seeing this again, and I mean my my ho- my hope is that the revelations about the revelations about the referendum and the revelations about the the the, the conduct of the referendum and the rea- reality coming to pass that is nothing like the reality that was described will make people sit up and think about this. Unfortunately, I'm. I'm, I'm too late. I, yeah, I mean, I think we've crossed the Rubicon. As I, again, as I've said before, once you've lied and not only got away with it, but been rewarded with a cabinet post, why do you, why would you stop? It's worked yeah. once. In fact, it's dangerous to stop at that point. Yeah, exactly. Well, Steve, listen, I think we both need a unicorn chaser. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So here's my unicorn chaser. Um, if you don't know what a unicorn chaser is, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, a unicorn chaser is the thing that makes you feel happy after you've heard something really awful. Um, oh, so it can be like a picture of a kitten. Or a, yeah, yeah. So anyway, here's my unicorn chaser. So Brexit happens, say. This isn't, this isn't cheering me up so far. Chris. So 10 to 15 years down the road, we, we are trying to get ourselves either an accession agreement or if not an accession accession agreement then at the very least an association agreement will desperately need one this is where the eu kicks in with its normative powers it will offer us something but in return it will ask for political reforms so you and i have both worked in uh georgia <laughs> and require the democratization and of it. it'll require the democracy they'll send we'll in the v- send election teams in line with the vienna commission uh, with, the, with the venice commission we will and 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 the the osce yeah. uh, we will uh, be required to for the uh, put together, of yeah, and then we'll they'll bring in technical advisors, and they'll be twinning. They'll and, give an opinion on the new constitution. Yes, yeah. And every year there will be a review, and they'll write up a report, and and they'll we'll come, and, the, they'll, come and, they'll come and help appoint judges like they're doing in Albania. Yes, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know, and and the EU will help Britain redemocratize the damage. It's it's a nice unicorn chaser. The the and also, the, it's got a sweet irony in it, which obviously appeals to me. But the 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 damage that can be done in the interim is so gigantic mm. and so difficult to put to put right. That I, I mean, I'm very very deeply worried. I mean, remember remember when we used to worry about things like the infringement of civil liberties of the Criminal Justice Act mm. that we weren't going to be able to have rave without licenses. Mm. We used to worry about shit like that. Mm. I mean, we are so far. Mm. Beyond beyond stuff like that, and and I mean, I have very deep. We you know we've talked about the blame myth that's that's clearly being promoted. Mm-hmm, that, yeah. that Brexit would have been wonderful if it wasn't for the pesky foreigners victimising mm. poor little UK. Dos dos legende. Ah, yeah. Sorry, that was. Uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was there. <laughs> excuse me. No, I was going all. Um, uh, what's the what's the. See, it's really late, listeners, and I'm really tired, and my brain's not functioning. It's um, what's the um, stab in the back? Isn't it? Yes, exactly. The what? What is it when you the law about you end up every every conversation ends up being about Hitler? Oh yes, yeah. It's on the every conversation on the internet yeah. ends, ends up being. Oh, is it, it's not Moore's law, is it? Is it Moore's law? No, it's not Moore's law. That's the computer one. Oh, that's the you always run out of space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never have a big enough hard drive. Yeah. Um, 
but the big worry about this for me is that um, you have the you have the potential for a genuine breakdown in UK EU relations yeah, if this isn't put right. Um, and I can imagine getting to the situation where there is no public support for an agreement between the UK and the and the EU, where there's no public support for security cooperation, and mm. and this is potentially very very deeply damaging for the continent and for the world not just for the not just for the uk but i think we're going down such a such a populist route on left and right actually mm. um and it's going to be so dreadful they're going to need to blame they are going to need to blame someone else because they are not going to want to take the blame for this and it can get much worse than we've thought it can ever get you've taken my unicorn chaser and you've flung it back in my face essentially cut its horn off yeah and its tail, and its legs, like that scene in Animal House. Oh my god! On that bombshell. <laughs> so this is my this is my this is my real worry, and I don't know how it can be get got got back. I think one way in which it may be is if the UK breaks up. Um, I mean, I think that if Scotland becomes independent, if Ireland, if Northern Ireland, even effectively becomes part of Ireland, it doesn't even have to actually unified, which I think is actually quite unlikely, um, you can end up in the you end up in the situation where England is going to have to have a new settlement because the the, the present arrangements apply to the UK to a UK that ne- that doesn't doesn't exist any longer, um, and that might be the that might be the thing that, that provokes the constitutional convention that provokes the uh, you know national mm. national reflection, which is which is clearly what's well, needed. Well, I think you're right, and I mean, we've kind of come full circle. But this is sort of where I was heading to um, in in my own analysis of, of federalism and the way in which the concept is misunderstood in the UK, and how can we ever sort of move beyond this exceptionalism? And I think you're right. I think the only way that it can be done is by break up of the UK, and and you know you're not going to get meaningful federalism in in, in the United Kingdom as it currently stands. You're no, not going no. to get meaningful de- devolution. You know, well, I think so, we, no. Well, I think we have meaningful devolution, but I think it's permanently under threat. That's the point. Yeah, but then it's not real. Devo- I mean, it's not a proper federal system, is it? It's not, no, it's not a proper federal system. It is real devolution. I think yeah. it's unfair not to call it right, real devolution. Okay, but I mean, the, but it's but it's un- but like I say, it's 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 residual powers and it's under constant. Yeah, ultimately, you're still in hock to Westminster. You're still yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dancing to their tune, mm. um, Steve. I need to go to bed. I'm tired. Yeah, me too. But I think I was really, I really enjoyed that actually, Chris. I le- and I learned a lot from. Well, I, from, I feel from that I, I, I feel that I got to cover a lot of the things that I wanted to cover. That I'm not sure I did it in a particularly articulate way. I mean, too much pizza and too little sleep. But um, well, it's not a lecture. It's 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 having a it's, it's having a chat. <laughs> We're about having it, a chat. So. Uh, yeah. No, no, I enjoyed that. And, we'll do it all again next and, week. And if you listen, if you if you listen to that, um, th- thank you. And I hope you find it as interesting as as, as I did. I mean, I found that very interesting. So. Yeah, feedback, please. And also, uh, do do please send me all your tweets and direct messages and emails, uh, correcting me where I went wrong, and I'll put them all in the bin. <laughs> and on that, um, let's move to lie of the week, Steve. The music, if you wouldn't mind. It's just me because Steve's not here, so I get to do this all by myself. 
first lie is without a doubt a lie, and it's um, from one of our very favourite liars, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob, what's your lie? Well, my lie, Chris, is the tweet that I wrote where I said, continuing free movement under another guise would let down the least well-off in society, and then he's done hashtag Ramonathon, which, Steve, I think is uh, an infringement of your copyright for Moronathon, no? Anyway, uh, Jacob uh, Rees-Mogg's lie, continuing free movement under any other guise would let down the least well-off in society. It's a massive lie. Um, Continuing free movement would not let down the least well-off in society. It would help the least well-off in society. Why? Because continuing free movement will boost our tax revenues, allowing essential public services to be funded. It will staff our NHS and other essential services. It will create jobs for those least well-off. And anyway, who is Jacob Rees-Mogg to tell us about the least well-off in society? What what does he know about the least well-off in society? Not very much, I suspect. Anyway. All right, and um, that is going to wrap it up for this week. Um, We hope to be back next week, um, and um, we might be talking about the BBC. There's been a lot of talk about the BBC um, hashtag Brexit Broadcasting Corporation. Um, we shall see. Anyway, for now, um, thanks for listening. Goodbye and see you next time. And to play us out, we have a very special song for you with a familiar tune, but with a uh, new lyric written by a great friend of the show and of mine and Chris's, John Worth, uh, with uh, Anders Ekberg and Melina Britz. And this is uh, Anders Ekberg singing... Apparently this was written, according to John, this was written in 2000. Uh, They were stuck on an island uh, in a storm and couldn't leave. Uh, And to pass the time, uh, they wrote this uh, ode to federalism. (laughs) Grant, see you all next week. Thanks a lot. Project just can't work. Some say nationalists will break us, conservatives will fight us, but trust us, we really do care.
confusing Lacking a constitution But we know what to do Reform 